Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Corology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 51. Pride is so important in the sense of mirroring back to God the delight that he has in us and actually feeling his delight and then going, actually, I sense God's delight in me and I'm going to show the world and God that I accept that delight, you know, and that I can, I can be proud of myself. Vicki Beeching is a writer, speaker, and a quality campaigner named by The Guardian as arguably the most influential Christian of our generation. Previously, she worked as a songwriter and a worship leader throughout her 20s and her 30s, uh, with much of that career based here in the U.S. And her, and her songs are still some of the most sung songs in churches around the world. Try saying that multiple times. Most sung songs. <laughs> Uh, she was a regular guest at America's biggest mega churches and Christian festivals, uh, but when she came out as gay, all of that changed. Uh, the door on her music career kind of closed. Uh, she was no longer welcome in those churches. Uh, and now, uh, several years later, uh, she's based in her homeland of England, where she works as an author, a media commentator, a keynote speaker, uh, where she champions a, a message of LGBTQ equality. And, and Vicky also focuses on raising awareness around mental health, uh, both in the church and in the corporate world. Uh, she has degrees in theology uh, from Oxford University and has recently returned to academia uh, alongside her writing and speaking to work on a PhD. Her first book, Undivided, uh, is out today. Uh, so maybe uh, hop into your car and listen to this episode on your way to the bookstore to pick up a copy of her new book, uh, it is absolutely incredible. Honestly, I think it is, it's a game changer. It's, it's one of the best books on faith and sexuality that I have read to date. Uh, it is, it is so good. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. Vicky, hi, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I was actually thinking about like getting getting ready for this episode. I was thinking about I think the last time we saw each other, which was I think three years ago in Kansas City. Yes, um, yes, it was. Yes, and and we were gonna do dinner one night, and I remember you like texted me like, "Where do you want to go?" And I was like, "You can you can choose wherever you want to go." Like, and I was expecting you to say like a local maybe Kansas City place that none of us had been to or had ever. And you were like, oh, I just saw Denny's out my window. I've never <laughs> been there before. <laughs> that is the strange thing about being British. We like the most strange things that your country has to offer. So for me, it's really rare to be able to get American style pancakes with like bacon and maple syrup. Like we don't, 
really have that combination in the UK. So like the sort of like Waffle House is exciting to me because we don't have them here. And it's not that I don't like nice food. I do, but um, <laughs> the sort of like diner experience in America is, we've seen it on so many movies in the UK that um, it was just funny that, you know, we could have gone to some really fancy Kansas City steakhouse or something and i was like i'd really like to go to denny's and have pancakes and maple syrup and bacon <laughs> yeah nobody complained it was delicious <laughs> <laughs> we had lots of calories and lots of yes. fun <laughs> oh, so good um, so to start uh this is a question that i ask everyone uh but how do you identify and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity that is a huge question um you don't let anybody get get off easily on this podcast um I identify as um, British and gay and Christian, I guess would be three three big parts of my identity. Initially, it was my faith that prevented me from identifying as gay. So right up until the age of 35, I was in the closet and had been brought up in a church that saw being gay as sinful and shameful, you know, as many of us have been. Um, and, you know, I know so many of us share that same journey of, of having that f- kind of having faith as the one thing that stops us being able to be honest about who we are. And it took me all those years to realize actually that my faith could uh, affirm my gay orientation. And so it went from being my faith that prevented me being gay to actually me having an experience with God and with the Bible that opened my eyes to the fact that God could actually affirm same-sex relationships, could affirm me as a gay person. And so it was kind of like my faith that kept me in the closet and then also my faith that then set me free to step into a fully authentic life. So I think the kind of, uh, yeah, the relationship between being gay and Christian has been kind of complex, but eventually it's led to me feeling liberated and authentic. Tell me a little bit about that process. Um, You have your book out today. Congratulations. And I mean, I feel like that's kind of what your book is about. Could you share with us a little bit what that journey was like? Um, Because you had a lot happen as you've kind of worked to reconcile your identity and your faith. Yeah, I have to also say that um, as an aside, Matthias designed both covers for the book, the US and the UK edition, and they look beautiful. (laughs) And it was all his design work. So well done, you. Thank you. It's fun to work with you and your many different. You have many different hats, don't you? Yes, <laughs> You're a man yes. of many talents. Uh, it was um, a blast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I feel like my journey's been really. Um, it's just been long and winding. I feel like I've lived about three lifetimes, um, and I think it was partly because when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a worship leader in church, and I wanted to write songs for the church and. In my early teens, I was locked away in my bedroom with a guitar, just kind of writing songs based on scripture. And as churches began to sing them in the UK, I got so excited and I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to uh, give the church hopefully some new songs that have good theology and uh, good music. Um, And that became my career goal. And it sort of felt like my vocation, you know, my sense of my mission in the world given to me by God. And it was so hard to juggle those two things because right around the same time, probably about the age of 13, when people were starting to ask me to sing in churches and it happened super young, <laughs> I was just this tiny, shy little British person kind of uh, up at the front singing my songs, really nervous and red-faced. Um, at the same time as getting started in that ministry and that career, uh, I realized that I was gay and it just felt like such an immense amount of stress 
to feel like I had these two aspects um, that were both really important, but that could not coexist. Uh, and so I decided back then, um, it kind of took me a few years to realize that I was definitely gay, you know, wondered if it might be a phase <laughs> and it wasn't. Um, but I just decided to shelve that whole part of my identity so that I could pursue um, leading worship in evangelical churches. It began in the UK and then after I went to university, it became the US and the kind of mega church circuit. And uh, it was really meaningful to me to do that job, but I knew that it all hung on me staying in the closet. So it took me until the age of 35 to find the courage to actually speak up. Yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking about that because um, like you, you describe in the book kind of, I mean, a, a good portion of the book is kind of what it was like to coexist in, or not even coexist, to try to just force yourself into this world um, that kind of the U.S. worship industry wanted you to fit. Um, and I, I'm curious about what that was like to kind of live this very public face of this this big worship leader who's kind of like the darling of the Christian music industry. And yet you're holding the secret that you feel like you can't share with anyone. Yeah, it was, it was just so hard. I mean, it kind of gives me shudders just thinking back to it. I would stand up on these stages and look out, at, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people singing along to songs that I'd written. And it would be such a surreal experience to know that if they knew that one thing about my identity, all of it would be over. Um, and it was just such a strange tension to live in, you know, having people come up at the end of meetings and services or tours and saying, your songs really touched us and blessed us. And we met God through your music. Um, and, and it was just so hard to kind of weigh that all up with this knowledge that it would just take one sentence, you know, I am gay for it all to end, for my career to be over, because it was a Christian record label um, and it was a Christian booking agent and my work visa in the US actually was only for that form of employment. So literally the whole life I'd built for myself in the US and I was there for 10 years um, signed to that big record label, um, it all hung on me staying in the closet and I knew if I came out, I would lose it. So it was a very precarious life um, and obviously with your psychology hat on, um, you can, um, you know, very much relate to that. I'm sure from many of your, your experiences and people you've spoken to, you feel like you're being ripped in two. And for me, it was just my mental health took the fall, you know, and then eventually my physical health as well. And coming out of the closet was, I would have chosen it in the end, but in the end, it was actually the effects on my health that I think forced me to make the decision that I had to come out. Yeah. Cause it feels like, I mean, I'm thinking of. There's this, there's this therapist who who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, um, and if, and that that makes me think so much of your story of it was ultimately your body that kind of almost forced you mm. to come out um, where you couldn't escape it anymore. Yeah, it's funny my my therapist had me read that book. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it's a very good one, isn't it? Um, and that's exactly what she said. It's like your your physicality is kind of keeping a tally of every single time you felt shame and fear and torn into. I thought it was something I could outrun my whole life. I really did. I would rehearse all of the kind of reasons that they give you in the conversion therapy world or the sort of, you know, conservative evangelical world, like, you know, you're perfectly whole and human without 
having a partner, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to be married or dating to be a whole person. Jesus is enough for you. I would, you know, I would be trying to live by all of that stuff. So, um, passionately and purposefully because I, I wanted it to become true, but it wasn't. And it was really damaging. And I was so isolated. Uh, I just felt like I couldn't connect with anybody because I couldn't, you know, even my close friends, because nobody knew I was gay. I just felt like there was this glass wall between me and everyone in my life. And I think that isolation has such a, such a huge knock on, um, on your well-being, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think about like, it cuts us off from our very personhood when we can't live into who God created us to be. And um, that's just devastating. Yeah. It's just devastating. Yeah. And, it's, and it is devastating to have those two things put at war with each other, like your sense of vocation, the thing God's called you to, the, the place in which you see God move and do things. And, uh, you know, just ministry in general is so exciting, isn't it? When you're in a, church where you see people helped and you see them healed and whole and God's encountering them and you have to choose between that and then your own desire for a family and someone to come home to and build a home with it's it's just crazy there's no way that you can be a healthy person and have those two things be pulling you in two different directions you you mentioned this kind of world of ministry and and I, I'm I'm curious if as you've kind of been on this journey and now that you've come out and and I mean you're kind of you're kind of doing ministry still, but in a different way. But I, I'm curious if your maybe perspective on ministry has changed through this journey. Mm, I think it has. I think previously I thought, um, I don't know, I guess I thought that I could cut so much of myself off. Uh, I think so much of the Bible is presented to us about denying ourselves and minimizing and limiting everything we desire. I think the gospel has really been misinterpreted in that way because now I would say that authenticity feels like ministry of its own. Like when I'm in the world as my true self, living, you know, this sort of abundant life that the gospels talk about as a full, whole, authentic person, I feel like anything I do, you know, in terms of ministry is so much more powerful and real and genuine. <laughs> but I just think there's so much teaching in the church about, you know, Jesus calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and sacrifice everything and lay down everything we want you know the kind of um you hear people saying oh i don't want to go uh, and be a missionary in a far off country i bet god's going to send me to do that one thing that i don't want to do i think that's that's such a classic example of us having this really warped view that god wants things for us that we just would never want for ourselves uh, and i think i'd shut myself down to such a degree that although my music still apparently according to other people was touching them and inspiring them I wasn't really very alive in the process. And I think that isn't ever God's ideal scenario for us. Authenticity as a ministry of its own. Mm. Mm -hmm. like, that's beautiful. Like, and I, I feel like, I mean, that's, that's what your, your book is like undivided coming out, becoming whole, living free from shame. Like you've stepped into this whole new kind of way of being simply by speaking authentically speaking truth into the world um what has it been like to kind of to to take that step to take that that journey into coming out um because it certainly hasn't been easy for you but yeah it hasn't 
much as I wish it had been, it hasn't yeah. been. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't have any regrets. I wouldn't want anyone to think that I have any regrets because I certainly don't. I, I think coming out is always the best choice. I just didn't realize how much damage living in the closet had done to me and how long I would have to spend repairing that damage. Uh, I think if I'd come out much, much younger, it would have been so much easier because there would have been less years of damage to undo. But it's, I, I think in my head, I imagine, okay, I'm going to come out, I'm going to do this newspaper interview in London and tell my story. And then, then I'm going to kind of, you know, dance off into the sunset to live this new life, you know, as though I could just click my fingers and it would all change. And in reality, which I think a lot of people don't talk about, but I, I wanted to talk about in my book, it's, it's not only the journey from growing up to when I finally came out, it also talks about coming out onwards and how the past four years have been. And just the shock it was, I think, to me, how much work I'm having to do with my mental health and my physical health to recover, you know, going, going in deep, deep depth with therapists to talk about things like disassociation, where I've just got so good over the years of completely kind of disassociating myself from my body and my feelings and my emotions. Um, and then it's no surprise, you know, when now I actually am able to be myself and to go on dates and stuff, actually, I'm not really sure exactly what I want or what I feel because so much of that has been shut down and I'm just through therapy being able to kind of wake that up. Um, and then with mental health, it was actually after I got, um, after I did my coming out interview that I got diagnosed with anxiety and depression, which is the other way around than I thought. Um, but I just had a lot of fallout, you know, in terms of having to go really deep in therapy and then being diagnosed with, with chronic illness from all the stress of my coming out process and all the vitriol that I received and losing my career in music. And it was a bit of a storm, you know, and I think the fallout of it mentally and physically for me was just a lot harder than I thought. So four years on, I'm delighted I came out, but I am still very much picking up the pieces of the damage that being in the closet and then having such a public coming out has done to me. You, you mentioned the chronic illness and, and that, that diagnosis kind of, being somewhat simultaneous with your coming out process. Um, and, and, and you mentioned in, in the book, like, as you kind of talk about your chronic illness, about how some people have kind of said, and the anxiety and the depression has kind of have used the language around this is God's judgment. Um, and I'm curious if you could maybe talk about that, like about chronic illness and this idea of quote unquote, God's judgment. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just mind blowing. Anybody who's yeah. not a Christian listening to this will be horrified. I'm sure yeah. that the church actually says these things to people. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's difficult to, to process. I think it all depends on your view of God in the first place. And I think for people who see God as a kind of, um, I don't know, like angry, taskmaster. I need to get my American on an angry taskmaster. How's that? <laughs> Just that's the translation in case anybody doesn't understand me. Um, I can translate for myself. I'm, bi I'm bilingual. Um, but God is an angry taskmaster in the sky, you know, throwing lightning bolts down um, every time we slip, slip up. And the, the role of other Christians is to kind of be that judgment again, you know, kind of judging their brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, I think that that feels like a lot of what I've had from evangelicals, which is sad, you know, that they they feel like it's their job to represent this judgmental God who is kind of pharisaical about 
what they think the Bible says. And it's it's really sad because so many of them have said things like, you know, the the fact that I've got um, a diagnosis of ME, which is a chronic fatigue syndrome kind of illness, and fibromyalgia, which is a lot of body pain and muscle aches and muscle weakness. They have said, you know, this is God's judgment on you for coming out and having such a dramatic effect on the church and leading people astray, you know, leading people into sin by telling people that it's okay to be gay and Christian. And it's it's heartbreaking because I think uh, already dealing with being so tired and having to constantly reduce my workload, um, it's just really hard then when people kind of kick you when you're down and it's hard when they're people of faith. So I have to listen to it through a lens um, where I'm just reminding myself saying, actually, this is not this is not my view of God. You know, God is kind and compassionate and loves me <laughs> and wouldn't do this to me. And I have to just keep reminding myself that, but it is difficult when, when that is a constant message, you know, of judgment and hatred and shame from people that claim to follow Jesus. It's mind blowing to me. <laughs> I think, you're, I think yeah. you're right. It does come down to really like what our view of God is um, and, and how we believe God works in the world. Like, sometimes it takes a huge shift as we as we are forced to like look into what do we actually believe about god yeah is he the kind of god that goes around making people sick and throwing around illness as punishment i just don't i don't believe that in the first place but i also don't believe i've done anything wrong that would be worthy of any kind of punishment because i think i've you know i feel like my decision to come out was very god led and I talk in the book about going on a real journey, a soul search, where I went back to the Bible and spent time in um, two beautiful churches in London that are really kind of old and ancient and have these kind of big resinous organs playing in the background sometimes. And it was just the most wonderful place to study and pray. And I uh, spent uh, weeks and weeks and weeks going through all of the scriptures again, all of the so-called clobber passages, you know that relate to same-sex relationships. And for me, it was a, a process of prayer and walking through it with God. It wasn't, um, as my critics say, that I just wanted an excuse to come out. I wasn't looking in the Bible to see what I wanted. I'd spent all my life, you know, thinking it was wrong to be gay. So yeah, for me, it was actually God nudging me, I believe, saying, come on, take the step. You know, you've misunderstood the Bible but look at it with fresh eyes, you know, look at academic work and pray about it and then take the step and come out. So uh, I believe far from judging me from coming out, I believe God celebrated that. At the end of your book, you, you kind of described this really tender scene with your grandfather uh, when you come out to him. Uh, and and he says to you, um, one, or one of the first thing he says to you is, is Vicky, you're just seeing what you want to see in the Bible. Um, and then you kind of go on to describe how the rest of that, that story plays out. And, um, but that, that phrase, and, and you just kind of mentioned it, that you're just seeing what you want to see in the Bible. <laughs> like that gets thrown around a whole lot as if we're reading the Bible with bias, whereas other people yeah. aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating, isn't it? As though they weren't, you know, whoever's saying that wasn't also reading the Bible with their own bias and, uh, I think it's it's very important for everyone to realize that certainly not just on this this issue, but any issue and any text, you know, we all come to every page of text with all of our preconceptions from our life experiences. Because all of us are limited in some way, you know, all of us are biased. So it just seems very unfair that so many LGBT Christians have that thrown at them. 
you know, as though we're untrustworthy witnesses to what the Bible says because we're wired a certain way. Like many of us have not come to the Bible actually looking for permission. Many of us um, believed what we were taught, you know, through evangelical circles for years. So I think if I'd wanted permission to be gay, I would have seen the Bible differently many years ago. It took me The fact that it took me so long, I think, proves that it took me so long to be convinced otherwise. <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier, and, and we did talk about this a little bit, your chronic illness. Um, but something that kind of stuck out to me in the book was you're doing all these keynotes and big events and magazine and radio and TV interviews. And, and during all of this, we're, we're kind of seeing one side of you, like when you're on, when you have energy. And then you describe this whole process of going home and having to recover and, and what it's like for people to not see your whole other part of life and, and then expect you to just have all this energy. Um, mm. I'm curious if you could maybe talk about what that has been like, because I feel like we don't talk about chronic illness much, and yet it's something that affects a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think whether it's mental or physical, um, any kind of, yeah, any kind of diagnoses, often we just keep them behind closed doors, don't we? And show us living our best life on Instagram or YouTube. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, things like Emmy and fibromyalgia, the things I have are quite weird in the sense that some people like me do have an energy reservoir. And if we're careful and we balance out our week, there is enough energy to kind of have some energy peaks, you know, and do something like a big keynote or something on TV, but then it's followed by a crash. Um, and that's, that's the challenge of the issues I've got. Basically living in the closet, dealing with kind of fight or flight, adrenal issues all my life means that um, I just have these crazy kind of crashes of my energy and I can probably do something big like maybe once a week. So if I've got a keynote or a conference or a TV thing, I just have to be really limited in what I put in my, in my calendar. And often it means that I have uh, very little of a social life because I want to still work. You know, I'm freelance juggling all these different things that I do with writing and broadcasting and speaking. But the one thing that suffers is that I have to spend most of my free time just resting, saving up energy for, you know, the next thing that I have in a couple of days or whatever. And so I think people just have no idea when they see me in a clip of a talk or something I've given or on, on TV, on the BBC, they have no idea that at home um, I'm, you know, working through stuff. I'm doing Skype sessions with my therapist to kind of keep unpacking all the mental health stuff that coming out has, has kind of dredged up. Um, and then physically often I'm just resting, you know, um, saving myself up for the next thing. And it's, yeah, I think chronic illness for anybody is often two lives. You know, there's a life that, life that people see and then there's a life behind closed doors where you're just exhausted and a bit wrecked. And I think it's just great to, to talk about it more openly. What would you say to people who are living with chronic illness themselves who are maybe just getting a diagnosis or are um, hiding a diagnosis or trying to hide a diagnosis? Like for people who are who are living with this, what words would you have for them? I think it's really important to know that you can be authentic about illness. Um, we're getting better, aren't we? I think as um, humans in society, being honest about things like sexual orientation and gender identity. But I think often people are afraid to talk openly about um, what they're battling, you know, whether it's mental health stuff behind closed doors or 
you know, massive amounts of fatigue or um, major illnesses. Um, I think often we fear that it will hold us back maybe at work from being promoted or trusted with new projects um, or, you know, that our friends won't understand. It's, it's a hard thing, I think. Um, a lot of people are starting to blog about this and um, vlog about it too. I've got some friends that are doing some great stuff around faith and suffering. And what, what, what do you do when God doesn't answer your prayers for healing? You know, what do you do when you get a diagnosis that is chronic, which basically means ongoing and there's no sign of an end. <laughs> um, and for me with my issues, mainly it's about fatigue and extreme tiredness and muscle weakness and pain. And I, I really hope one day that will go away. And I've tried basically every therapy and medicine available because <laughs> I'm a geek and I researched the heck out of it as soon as I got diagnosed. Um, and I've had, what is it now, three years since I got diagnosed um, with these things. And I really have tried everything, but all that seems to work is actually rest and trying to avoid stress and trying to avoid situations that make me anxious and throw my, you know, adrenals off and my body floods with cortisol. You know, it's, it's that fight or flight thing. Um, and all of my doctors agree that living in the closet basically caused this damage, which is just quite a lot to get your head around, isn't it? I think as you process it and uh, try to walk forwards. Like it, like this is, I mean, I, I, you're, you're talking about suffering um, and 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 this like juxtaposition between the suffering that living with the theology that you held kind of caused, um, and the joy and the goodness of of living authentically, and yet they're coexisting together. And and I'm curious, like, if your theology has shifted as you've kind of walked this, like the last three years of of. Of like, because I think like you mentioned this is this idea of like we we have these like fantasies of coming out and then everything being amazing that kind of like <laughs> it gets better and it does get better and like and you mentioned this like there's a lot of suffering that happens hmm. and I'm curious like what maybe even not your theology but what has your walk with God kind of been like as that has happened? Mm. I think I've had to make room for grieving and grief, which isn't what I expected to be kind of part of my coming out process after coming out. You know, I thought that the grief was all previous to coming out and that post coming out, I mean, it does get better and it. I feel so much better than I did when I was living in the closet, but um, it was interesting to have to kind of grieve for my music career that I lost, um, grieve for just those moments when I would stand up on those stages and look out at a huge crowd of people singing those lyrics and those songs. And there was just something so special about that atmosphere, you know, um, just knowing that I was helping them and they were encouraged by my music and letting go of all of that is huge. Um, and I think I've just had to be honest with God and have a lot of honesty about grief and about loss and I guess about unanswered questions that I don't really understand. Um, why I couldn't have come to that realization sooner. Um, like many of us who lived in the closet for years, I, I kind of grieve the fact that I didn't get to have a normal teenage experience. You know, I didn't get to be out and gay and have like teenage dating experiences or talk to all my classmates at you know, high school about who I liked and who I didn't and, you know, just normal things, <laughs> normal things. So it's kind of weird to come out at 35 and then be starting all that, you know, and it's, it's difficult to learn it, isn't it? If you haven't had the 20 odd years that everybody else has had on me, you know, um, 
just kind of weird to be starting dating at 35 and getting your head around that while being in therapy. And it's just, it's just a lot. So I guess some of my conversations with God have been quite funny, you know, just about trying to learn all this stuff on the go. And, but also I think just realizing that uh, God sits with us in our sadness and that he grieves with us for the way the church treats people. I think that's been huge for me to realize actually that God is on the side of those who are broken and God understands better than anyone that the church does a lot of harm and a lot of damage and yeah, that God is not the church. I think that's probably the biggest revelation that has saved my faith, you know, from just unraveling that what is done in the name of God by the church is not always representative of who God actually is. You mentioned dating um, and and this this feeling of like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like for so many of us, like, that's a feeling that I have all the time of kind of like, not like, at least I have this fantasy about like being able to figure this all out in high school. And like, <laughs> everyone who is able to figure it out in high school is doing this great job. And, um, and I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that feeling of like, I am starting from scratch here and everyone else has this figured out. Yeah. I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's so real. And I, I talked to so many people in, in who have similar stories to us, like who feel that same way too. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Like what has that been like? Um, I think, um, I think it just feels like a lot of us that have been in the closet until, you know, our twenties or our thirties, we're kind of on this different timeline to everybody else. Um, it feels like, most of my friends um, around the same age as me have sort of progressed through all these life milestones that I was unable to. So they did, you know, all the dating in high school and many of them found somebody in their sort of, you know, mid twenties ish and got serious and got engaged. Many of my friends have actually got multiple kids by now. Um, and it's just very strange because I feel, and I, I've talked to a lot of other LGBT Christians who feel the same way and it's, almost like our lives got put on hold because we had to live in the closet. And so we just kind of pressed pause on all of those hopes and um, kind of milestones of life. And then when we come out, we're kind of pressing unpause. So uh, I'm looking at all my friends who are mostly all married with multiple children. And I'm just kind of thinking, okay, I, I'm going to start dating. <laughs> I, feel so, I feel so far behind everybody else. Um, but I guess on the flip side also, hopefully it means that we – we've put so much work into coming to know ourselves, you know, to figuring out our identity. Cause I think anybody that comes out has to do quite a lot of work on who we are, you know, and our own just human makeup and, and what, who it is we are in the world. Sometimes I think maybe that gives us a really good foundation. So although we're starting later, uh, perhaps we'll just avoid some of the pitfalls that other people fell into. Maybe <laughs> um, that's what I'm hoping <laughs> that we avoid all the, the tumultuous pitfalls and we just kind of, cruise in right at the moment when you're, you know, old enough to know who you are and you've done the work through therapy and then you can meet the right person and live happily ever after. <laughs> uh, yes, that's the dream. <laughs> that's what I'm choosing to believe because yes. I've done a lot of work about kind of grieving the loss of my teenage years and lo losing my 20s in the same way because I was totally in the closet and um, I just felt so committed to my faith and to integrity that I didn't feel able to live any kind of double life. So, I, you know, I literally did not date um, while I was in the closet, you know, so that's, it's a lot to start, isn't it, at 35? And it's it's kind of, 
awkward and hilarious to be honest about it and it, it helps to have other people that are in the same boat <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah because it is awkward it's just <laughs> it's it's already yeah. an awkward process and then to add that on top of it like my goodness like <laughs> yeah but i do believe i just have to keep encouraging myself thinking actually many of us that have been on these crazy journeys of coming out of the closet in the church the work we've had to do is deep isn't it it's deep therapy for a lot of people and many people out there just haven't done any therapy and maybe they're not really even in tune with who they are kind of in their authentic core, you know? So I'm just hanging on to that kind of, you know, I think it's quality, not quantity that matters in terms of the years that you spend with someone. And I just really hope, you know, that, I mean, if I had been married before now, it would have been a disaster because I probably would have tried to marry a guy, you know, according to church teachings. And yeah, I'd rather be where I am now than, you know, living a life that's not authentic. This is a little bit of a shift, but um, it's it's June, so it means it's Pride Month, and and I'm going to be asking everyone who's on, who's on the podcast in the month of June to talk about Pride. And like, I'm curious. I, I haven't actually formed this question yet because this is the first <laughs> this is the first time <laughs> I'm asking it. Um, I'm curious, like, what like. What are your thoughts on this idea of pride? Um, and, and what have you learned about quote unquote pride? Um, cause I think so often in the church, we see pride as like one of the seven deadly sins or, you know, mm-hmm. and yet there's this whole tradition in the queer community to celebrate and to take pride in who we are. Um, yeah. 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 Well, my first experience of pride was before I came out. Uh, in 2014, I went to Pride and then I came out in the August. And so I remember going to that Pride in London and I was like super stealth, you know, <laughs> I think I was wearing a baseball hat <laughs> and I uh, was walking around like with my head down and I just wanted to kind of hide. Um, and it was my, it was almost like looking through a window into a world that I didn't belong to yet, but I just needed reassurance that it was there. I needed to know this huge family of people existed and that when I took the step two months later in August, 2014, that they would be there. And it was amazing because it gave me so much more courage. And I think that that for me will always be what I think of when I think of pride. Um, I've been in the pride March for the past few years. And when I marched, I just kept thinking of the old me, you know, and that there would be other people out there with baseball hats on, hiding, you know, watching the crowd as though they were just sort of like on a shopping trip, not really bothered, you know, <laughs> like secretly, but really deep down going, oh my gosh, like I'm not out and I need to see people that are proud of their sexuality and their gender identity marching together, you know. Um, so it was really powerful to be part of it. Um, I actually marched last year with um, with YouTube, which was cool because YouTube have such a, a commitment to LGBT people that they actually had um, – like a big red London double-decker bus, you know, those red buses we have in London. And they just decorated the whole bus with YouTube and all these rainbows. And um, some of us were like riding on the top of the bus and some of us were walking behind it. And it was amazing to just feel so proud of who I was at last. Um, And yeah, to pick up on that thing you said about the word pride, I think it's kind of, it's really unfortunate that the church takes that stance because anytime I tweet about pride or Facebook about pride now, all of these Christians pile in with exactly what you're saying. You know, God tells us that, you know, pride is a sin. You know, pride comes before a fall. We're supposed to lay down our pride. So I kind of almost wish that 
it was called something like courage because maybe the church wouldn't be able to take such a shot at it. But actually pride is so important um, in the sense of mirroring back to God, the delight that he has in us and actually feeling his delight. And then going, actually, I sense God's delight in me and I'm going to show the world and God that I accept that delight, you know, and that I can, I can be proud of myself. And I just think it's so important to embrace that, you know, to embrace it as an annual thing. It, you know, it is desperately needed. People sometimes say, oh, it's outdated. You know, everybody can be gay this day and age, but we know that's not true. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of places that, that don't embrace LGBT equality yet. So, um, yeah, I think pride is crucial. And whenever I'm in the March, I always think about, you know, the year when I watched (laughs) secretly from the sidelines. And I just hope that I can be that to someone else, you know, that by showing up, there'll be one more person in the march to encourage people to to take that step and 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 come out themselves. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Like yeah, I, I remember watching Prides uh, before I came out and 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 watching it with like this mixture of like fascination and like oh my gosh, I will never be like that and and <laughs> and also being like but I want to be and and mm-hmm. and how I feel like every year um when I go I step more and more into like the celebration that it is yeah Um, yeah yeah i don't think i don't think um people that live in a kind of heteronormative reality realize how rare it is for us to be the majority mm -hmm. i think that was the thing that amazed me when i was part of my first march that everybody around me you know for miles i think it was in london it felt like it was just this long stream of people going down oxford street and the center of london and i just thought everybody i can see is either LGBTQ or is an ally. And that's so rare for people like us, isn't it? To be surrounded by people like us when almost all of the time we are the minority in every room, in every, you know, classroom or congregation or anywhere, grocery store, you know, like we're just always in the minority, aren't we, as as a minority. (laughs) So I just loved loved that feeling that I was surrounded, you know, surrounded by my people. and it was just an amazing feeling. That's that's why I go every year, I think. It's kind of partly for for my own sense of solidarity and then also hoping that it helps people too. Mm-hmm. Ah, Vicky, this has been so good. Thank you. Um, You're a great question, Oscar. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, how can people find your work um, and like and your book? Yeah, I'm uh, always online. I'm addicted to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the above. Uh, everything's just Vicky Beeching. So just search for my name. And uh, yeah, my website's vickybeeching.com if you want to check out the book. Um, yeah, at the moment, I don't have any uh, US dates or speaking or anything lined up, mostly because of my health. I've just had to really pull back on uh, on that. But hopefully in the future, I will be coming back to your beautiful land <laughs> of Denny's and pancakes and bacon and maple syrup. <laughs> and and uh, as soon as uh, I have any dates for the US, they'll be on my website. So that's, you know, in case anybody's got questions about that, but come say hi, especially on Twitter. Come say hi on Twitter. That's my favorite place. Um, and I'm always excited to, uh, you know, meet new people there and hear where you're from and uh, to, yeah, just talk about these kind of topics uh, on social media. I think we can have really great conversations across the miles um, using social media to kind of understand each other better and, and, and be support to especially fellow LGBTQ Christians. So come find me. <laughs> ah, thank you so much, Vicky. Thanks for having me. <laughs> 
Be sure to pick up a copy of Vicky's new book, Undivided, wherever books are sold, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Uh, it is out today. Uh, you can find Vicky over at vickybeaching.com and across social media at vickybeaching. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and over 70 other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Chorology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Chorology is by leaving a rating or a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out. I'll get back to you. Until next week, y'all. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.